This episode contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. You're listening to the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kalatni. Hey friends, we're back with another awesome episode of Love and Sex. That's right. This is kind of Love and Sex 2.0. It's the new incarnation of Love and Sex, which means we look at a couple different things. We have some questions. We have some interviews. Up first, we're going to be talking about the biggest Love and Sex headlines from around the world. And then you have a really interesting interview, Noah. That's right. It's with Dr. Michael Aaron. We're going to be talking about sex roulette parties, which has been sort of all the rage lately. Everyone's talking about it, but no one really knows if they actually exist. So we're going to get to the bottom of that. And then... Lastly, we're going to do some listener questions, including one about rape fantasies. But first, let's talk about some of those headlines. Let's do it. Here's one on porn blockers. For the sake of the children of Utah, state lawmakers have proposed a bill to block porn on mobile devices. I hate this. <laughs> tell me why you hate, hate it. Anytime, and then I'll tell you why I hate it. I just think anytime we start censoring stuff, you know, guess who is responsible for children? Their parents, their guardians. So if you don't want your kids looking at porn on cell phones, on computers, on TVs, in movie theaters, then take care of your kids. Don't tell me that I can't look at porn on my phone if I want to. <laughs> well, it's it's for the children, though, Noah. It's just for the children. I don't have kids. I don't think I want to have kids. And I don't want them, you know, harshing my porn mellow. So it's worth noting that both England and India have passed laws to block access to porn over the past couple of years, and there has been some pretty serious collateral damage, and that is my hesitation. So these porn blockers can't delineate between porn and rape crisis centers or Mm -hmm. sex ed sites for children or sites actually offering help to people with a porn addiction or things that are actually amenable to these lawmakers. Right. And also, how are we defining porn? I mean, we have a friend, Sophia Wallace, who does that awesome clitoracy project. And I think people are always, you know, targeting her stuff and saying it's it's obscene or it's pornographic. And And it's it's not. It's art. And it's also really smart. And it gets people to think. So it's just such a slippery slope. And I think it's awful. So... No, bad Utah. Bottom line, censorship is dangerous. Exactly. Stay away. Okay, Karina, so now our second story is that there is a new documentary coming out about human puppies and puppy play, which I think a lot of people have no idea what that is. But basically, it's people. I think in the documentary, it's actually gay men they're they're chronicling um, who dress up like puppies and engage in play that puppies might engage in. So maybe like they have chew toys or they are walked by their handlers. And it's sort of an erotic sexual um, subset of BDSM, I think. And I love it. What makes you love it? I just love that people are coming forward and talking about what gets them off or talking about the things that excite them. And, you know, yeah, I think people freak out about this and they think it's unnatural or evil, but it's not. When you think about it, so many things are unnatural. There are a lot of things that are worse in the world than someone saying, like, I want to act like a puppy. Like, I want, like... Yeah. If you want to put on a latex mask and look like Scooby-Doo and that gets you off or it gets your partner off, please, by all means... Go do it. Well, we should discuss the fact that at least in this documentary, they do look like Scooby-Doo. The outfits are (laughs) 
incredible. They're I mean, incredible. this is like an investment. I can't even imagine how much they cost. This is not like painting your face and no. this is this is the real deal. Yeah, they're not getting the makeup kit from like Walgreens. You know <laughs> what I mean? This is the real deal. And the other thing too is that we should note this is not Puppy play is not playing with puppies. They're not right. having sex with dogs. There's no bestiality involved. No. It's just a fantasy. It's a fetish. It's, for some people, a lifestyle. And I think it's cool. And it's, I think it's great there's a documentary that's trying to demystify exactly this and make it a little bit less scary for people who don't understand it. I think what makes you excited about it is actually what makes me excited about it, and that's that— if there's something this far on the spectrum that we're talking about and normalizing, then yeah. people with far less extreme manners of kink are going to feel hopefully more comfortable coming out and being like, hey, like, I want to try this or this feels good. Like, it just expands the breadth of what is acceptable and what is normal and what people know about. If you can be a puppy, you can do anything. You can be a unicorn. Totally. I want to see unicorn play. Oh, my God. I Let's <laughs> sign me up. We should do unicorn play. We should start a unicorn play movement. I'm into it. Non-sexually. <laughs> the next article that caught our eye said that having sex once a week might be enough for couples to maintain a happy, healthy relationship, according to a new study. What do you have to say, Noah? I think it's interesting. Yeah, the study said that having sex more than once a week doesn't necessarily increase happiness, which I think is interesting. It depends. I think it depends on how old you are. I think it depends on what kind of relationship you're in. But I think for a lot of people, maybe sex once a week is enough. I think people also require different levels of intimacy. So on average, sex once a week might be enough. Of course, there are other people on the end of that spectrum that need sex 12 times a week and people who need sex once a month. I don't think it's about timing or, okay, we need to do it this amount of time because this study says so. Do what feels right for you. But hopefully this makes people feel comfortable if they were having sex once a week and they felt like that wasn't enough or they were somehow denying their partner or themselves. Yeah. And I wonder, too, what exactly sex is in this case. Right. And also maybe, you know, intimacy. Maybe you're only having sex once a week. So whatever that, however you use that, whether penetrative or you're having oral sex or whatever. But maybe you're cuddling a lot or maybe you are having great makeout sessions or there's other ways that you're being intimate. So, I'm not sure that we should always just focus on the idea of sex and are we having enough sex. Right. Maybe intimacy is the thing that we should be thinking about. 100%. So the next story that caught our eye is a study that looks at how much of a workout you really get when you have sex. It's a Canadian study, actually, and they looked at heterosexual couples who were uh, engaged in sexual activity. They said it was compared to brisk walking, which doesn't really sound like that much of a workout to me. No, I mean, I think it depends on how long you're having sex, too, which you have to take into account. And the study does say you have to take that into account. So if you're having sex, which does increase your respiratory rate, your heart rate, and your blood pressure for three minutes one time right. a week versus for 30 minutes Or like if you're having week. tantric sex for like 12 hours. Right. <laughs> that, that's a workout. That's though. a workout. But you're right. If you're just sort of, you know, pumping and dumping and getting done in 30 seconds— that's not really going to be a workout. Right. But I do like the idea of people actually incorporating sex into their workout routines. Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's thinking of it as a way to get more exercise. That's awesome, I think. Right. And probably more fun than doing the Stairmaster. A lot more fun than the Stairmaster. So, yeah. Get out of the gym and get into the bed. Or the kitchen. Or the dungeon. <laughs> this next story terrifies both of us. And <laughs> it is 
a really frightening reason that you might not want to Netflix and chill. That is to (laughs) say, having sex in front of the television might not be such a great idea after all. This was scary. Yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah, it turns out that hackers are using smart TVs, so TVs that have webcams in them, um, and they're able to basically film what's going on in your living room. Film people having sex. Yeah, or doing whatever you do. But yeah, I think the scariest thing for people is something intimate happening and they're being filmed. It's interesting because I know that your boyfriend is totally terrified of this and he puts a post-it note over the webcam on his computer. Well, I don't think he's terrified of of the sex part of it. I right. think he's just of the privacy breach. Yeah. But yeah, he definitely, he's been doing that for a really long time and I've always kind of told him he's a weirdo for it. But um, turns out he might have been onto something. Yeah, so if you are having sex in front of your TV, which is fine— Just maybe think twice about it um, because it appears people can hack into your smart TVs. I don't think it's happening. You know, this is not a wide-ranging, sweeping thing. Right. But it can happen. Well, that's what I say to my boyfriend. I'm like, why? Like, why do you think people want to watch what you're doing? Like, I love you, but you're not that interesting. Exactly. But think twice. Yeah. No, be conscious of it. That's for certain. All right, now we're going to take a quick pause, but stick around. In a minute, we're going to share an interview with Dr. Michael Aaron about sex roulette parties. And we're going to answer more questions from you, our listeners, so you won't want to miss it. Before we get back to the show, have you found Love and Sex on iTunes? iTunes is one of the best places for people to discover our podcast. So please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and give us a review to let us know what you think. Each time we get a new review or rating, our podcast climbs the rankings, which helps other people discover our show and spread sex positivity throughout the land. And if you've already found us on iTunes, tell a friend to listen. Okay, now back to the show. Noah talks with Dr. Michael Aaron, a psychotherapist, sexologist, and sex therapist about sex roulette parties. What happens at them? Why do people want to participate? And most importantly, are they even real? Just tell us a little bit about your background. What do you specialize in? Well, uh, I am a certified sex therapist, so that's what I do all day, sex therapy. That's my specialty. And I think I would divide it into two groups. One is people who are struggling with some aspect of their sexuality. Maybe they're having some kind of dysfunction or something or relationship problems of some sort. The other are lifestyle people. These are people who may be in some sort of alternative lifestyle community, whether kink or uh, polyamory or something like that. And they want to work with a therapist who gets them, someone who isn't going to judge them, someone they don't have to educate, they don't have to go through a bunch of sessions explaining anything. So I just do maybe traditional therapy with alternative folks and also sex therapy. Yeah. Well, you seem like the perfect person then to talk about this. So in the news in the last couple of weeks, there's been this story about what they're calling um, sex roulette parties, or some people are saying Serbian sex roulette parties. Uh Um, And what basically happens is that supposedly— all these people get together, and they have an orgy, uh-huh. and one of the people who's invited has HIV. Uh-huh. And you're not allowed to use protection, uh-huh. and so you don't know if you're going to be infected. I guess it, this originated in Spain. A doctor in Spain said that he he had heard about this, uh-huh. and it suddenly became, you know, I saw so many outlets covering this. Uh-huh. And it was based on just this one guy's, not even testimony, just a rumor. Yep. So have you heard of this before? Is this a real thing? What, what's your take on it? 
Well, um, I, first of all, let me say that uh, a, a large percentage, maybe 50% or more of my clients are gay or queer. So they may be in, they may consider themselves polyamorous or into BDSM, but they're also gay. So I hear a lot about all kinds of things and all kinds of parties. And, and so I've heard of it, but only anecdotally um, in, in, in the sense of someone asking me about it or that that person has heard about it. But I've never had a client tell me that they actually attended one of these events or that they know for a fact that such an event occurred and so-and-so happened. It it sounds kind of anecdotal. If an event like this were to happen, what do you think the driving sort of motivation is for someone to attend an event like this? Well, first of all, let me say, um, as you said, I don't think there's any concrete evidence that these events do happen. I know that there's been um, kind of rumors in the past. Dan Savage, the famous columnist, used the term bug chasing mm-hmm. to refer to these kinds of rumors that seem to pop up once every 10 years or so. But what you'd be describing is sort of an event where people get together to have some kind of a thrill. The psychology behind it is that the event would be even more intense because of the inherent risk involved. So the stakes would be higher. The adrenaline would be pumping. There was a sex therapist who was very well known. He was a theorist. His name is Jack Morin. And he wrote a book called The Erotic Mind. And he wrote that there's, I believe, four or five key ideas that in his research intensify the sexual experience. So one is something that's taboo. Mm -hmm. One is where there's an element that you may be discovered. And another is that there is some inherent risk. So this would fit into that category of a risky event that intensifies the sexual aspect because it's so forbidden and risky. Yeah, it seems to me like, you know, human nature in general, we like to do things that have risk because it is a thrill. So even think about, you know, bungee jumping or skydiving. And so I guess if you take that idea and put it in the arena of sex, activities or events like this could sort of fulfill that need for risk-taking. Well, and and I think a lot of sexual activities do fall under that category. So, for example, Within BDSM, the term that a lot of people use is RAC, which is risk-aware consensual kink. So they're mm-hmm. they're aware going in that there is some inherent risk, and they agree to do it consensually, and the risk is part of the thrill. Mm-hmm. So even without the context of these bug-chasing parties or the Serbian roulette or whatever, mm-hmm. I think something that feels risky is part of a lot of people's sexualities. It's just, is it a controlled risk? Mm-hmm. Is it a risk with some safe parameters? Um, is, are there certain guidelines or are you like really putting your life at risk, which would be what this party would be if it really existed? What do you think the origin of a rumor like this would be? How does it fulfill some kind of human, you know, need or curiosity. I think people still love to be titillated and they love to stick their nose in other people's, you know, private business. And so (laughs) when something like this happens, it it, it does feel exciting for those people, I think. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it's exciting because uh, I think that there is always this kind of appeal of something happening that's completely unknown, mm-hmm. like almost like espionage or something. You know, there's this forbidden realm where these things that you had no idea were going on are going on. Right. And this, there's this allure of sort of this unknown world that will always get people. 
these parties aren't the only thing. There was uh, some journalists contacted me about something called breeder parties, and mm-hmm. I think that, that they do exist, but where, where these women want to get pregnant, and but without knowing who the sperm donor, so mm-hmm. to say, is going to be. But I think that, again, is something that's blown up, and probably these parties— um, have happened, but they're not like some big trend or something. Right. So I, that's another example. You you get all these stories about all kinds of underground parties, which fuels people's fantasies. Yeah, Like there's all of this stuff going on that's sort of so different than my mundane life. Yeah, you know, and definitely. I, and, and that's really captivating for a lot of folks. And, you know, I always say, like, a f- there's never a bad fantasy, really. I think any fantasy is valid as long as it's a fantasy. It's That's when right. we move from the fantasy into the real world. So what yeah. would you do if you had a client or a patient come to you and they were interested in, in one of these kind of parties? Would you try and dissuade them? What What's the tactic for a sex therapist when dealing with an issue like this? Well, uh, Noah, you, you brought up some really good points, and there's two things I would say about that. Number one is, as you mentioned, there's a huge gap between thoughts, feelings, and fantasies, and actual behavior, Mm -hmm. right? So this is something I say to clients all the time because they may be confused. I say, have you ever had a murderous thought? Like if you're really, really angry, Mm -hmm. you know, someone really ticks you off, you might have for a moment this idea of, you know, putting your hands around their throat or whatever. But if you don't do it, you're not a killer. But if you do... You will be a killer. So you're defined by your actions Mm -hmm. and not your thoughts or your fantasies. And the truth of the matter research shows is that folks who um, they took a study of people who have OCD. So they have a lot of really uncomfortable, intrusive thoughts. And they uh, took regular folks who didn't have OCD. And the researchers found that both groups had the same kinds of intrusive thoughts, except the OCD people were really freaked out about it. Mm -hmm. So that made them ruminate more about it. So the point is we have all kinds of thoughts, we have all kinds of fantasies, and we're not defined by it because it's not necessarily our actions. Mm -hmm. And so if someone does want to act upon it, the strategy I take is is, would be under the umbrella of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So I'll say, okay, look, you want something that feels risky and thrilling. Can we get you what you want, but in a much more safe way, Mm -hmm. where you're getting it taste of it, but you're not really exposing yourself to that same threat. Right. I'm not a big believer in suppression or trying to, you know, pretend that your desires don't exist or take a cold shower because it's just, but what I am a big fan of is saying, look, allow yourself to experience these fantasies and these desires, Mm -hmm. but you don't actually exactly have to do that. You can do something else that is safe, but still is a little bit titillating. Yeah. So maybe some exhibitionism or something that's not going to be put you in danger. Consensual. Consensual, (laughs) of course. Consensual. Not just exposing yourself to random strangers, but, you know, maybe you try and have sex in the back of your car or something, you know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of things that people can do. And I think generally these kinds of fantasies fall into themes. They're thematic. Mm -hmm. So you might have a fantasy of doing something where you might get caught. Okay, well, you're not going to actually do something where the police is right around the corner. You're going to do something that gives you a taste of it. You might want to do something that feels like you're experiencing, uh, you know, some kind of pain. But again, you know, within certain thresholds where you're not— um, doing something that would be abusive or veer into the territory of something that's non-consensual. Right. 
So to sum it up, we're not convinced that sex roulette parties are happening. (laughs) But if you are looking for a thrill, there are lots of safe and less risky ways to go about it. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Well, my pleasure. That was really interesting. But now it's time to dive into a couple questions from our listeners. That's you. Let's do this. Here's our first one, Karina. I'm a 42-year-old straight, recently divorced woman. After being in a nearly sexless marriage for 14 years, I'm suddenly having lots of sex. You go, girl. Most of it with guys I meet online. My friends think I'm crazy and want me to meet a nice guy and settle down again. They've even been jokingly calling me a slut. They're also worried that meeting guys online for sex isn't safe. I'm actually very happy, but they're starting to get to me. What do you think? I think your friends need to chill out. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I think maybe your friends are in some sexless marriages of their own. Or they just aren't where you're at. And that's fine. I think it's exciting, especially if you haven't been having sex for 14 years or very regularly and you want to be. It must feel like you've suddenly found an oasis in the desert, you know? That's awesome. Explore that. Don't let slut-shaming dictate what you're going to do because that is 100% what your friends are trying to do to you. Yeah, and I think— Maybe not intentionally, maybe not with malice, but that's what's happening. They're saying, okay, there's this normative life that you're supposed to be living that you did live for so long, and now you're deviating from that. And and for them, that must seem crazy. But for you who's experiencing it and who's incredibly happy with the situation that you're in— Like Noah said, you go, girl. And I understand, actually, maybe their fears about the online safety thing. I think it's, you know, I find sex online all the time, but I think it can be different when you're a woman. I don't know where you're finding the sex, how you're doing it, but that is something to be aware of. If you're going to meet up with someone that you don't know, it's often a good idea to let someone else know that you're going to be doing this. Give them um, the phone number of the person that you're meeting up with. Uh, if a person that you're going to meet up with doesn't want to give you their phone number or doesn't want to, you know, reveal details, that can be exciting for some people. Like anonymous sex is definitely a thing. But it, you have to take into account how safe you feel. I think that's a huge red flag and you shouldn't do it. Yeah, I I think you have to really decide whether or not it's you're going to feel safe doing it. But no, I don't think you should stop doing it. I think as long as you feel fulfilled and this is something that you're happy exploring right now, Keep doing it. I'm just happy that you're happy. Me too. And having lots of sex. The next listener question we have is, what are your thoughts on rape fantasies and rape role play? Interesting. What are your thoughts, Karina? I definitely have thoughts, but I want to hear yours first. I don't want to oh, taint God. you. Yeah. Um, this is really hard for me. Okay. But from a place of sex positivity again i come back to sort of consent 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 um and if that's something that you want to do and something that you communicate you know the very strict guidelines beforehand have safe words taken all of those measures mm-hmm. then it's not my place to have an opinion on what yeah. you want to do. Yeah. And that's my very diplomatic answer. I, I think that is very diplomatic. I think rape fantasies and rape role play is a super controversial thing. I think it does scare a lot of people and for good reason. I mean, rape is obviously not something you joke around with. Um, but I do think that I think any fantasy is legitimate. And I think you're right. I think that if you are doing this and it's in a place of consent and everybody's on the same page um, and everyone knows what's going on. I don't see any reason why not to, but I, I do think that the lines can get blurred um, 
and you have to be really careful with what you're doing. I also think you have to ask yourself why you're going forward with this. So mm-hmm. if it's like if your partner has a rape fantasy and you don't have a rape fantasy, that's something that you, especially, you know, especially as a woman, in my opinion, that's something that you very much need to take into account. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of those fantasies where you really, it would really be ideal for both parties to have it because to make somebody feel like a rapist or to feel as if you've been raped or violated, Mm -hmm. if that is not in your fantasy realm, that is not a place that anyone should be made to dip into. Yeah, and it's interesting because we don't know this listener didn't tell us their gender or their age or their situations. We don't know who this is. We don't know if it's a gay man. We don't know if it's a straight woman. We don't know who is asking this question. But I think that sometimes those different characteristics can also dictate how problematic or how uh, complicated this sort of fantasy can be. We also don't know what their experience is, which is to say that there is a lot of literature and there's a lot of different studies on how a lot of women who have experienced rape and sexual assault actually have rape fantasies Mm -hmm. in order to try and resolve some of that. But that comes with its own sort of can of worms, too, in my opinion, of whether you want to put your current partner or whoever it is in that position of sort of therapizing with you and whether they're able to do that. So there's just— A lot going on. A lot going on. But I think bottom line is that a fantasy is is a fantasy. Right. If we're talking about a fantasy purely as what it is. Right. You know, I know a lot of um, gay men who love porn where it's, you know, they're getting breeded, as it's called. You know, there's no condom. There's no protection. They're coming inside of them. There's this risk. And that's a fantasy for them. But they probably wouldn't do it in their normal life. And that's what fantasies let you do. They let you live out things that you maybe normally wouldn't do. So, yes, there are a lot of caveats to rape fantasies and a lot of things to consider. But in and of themselves, I think a fantasy is something that people should be encouraged to safely and very thoughtfully work out, work through. With a consenting, happily, enthusiastically consenting partner. Right. That was the most diplomatic answer ever, (laughs) ever. That's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Big thanks to our guest, Dr. Michael Aaron. Thanks to our editor and producer, Nick Offenberg. And finally, a big thanks to all of you guys for listening, especially those of you who wrote in with questions. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to Love and Sex on iTunes and reach out if you have a story for us or a question. As always, you can reach us at our email, which is loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. We're going to be back with a new episode in just two weeks. We'll talk to you then. Bye. Bye.